is this question, who are you? Who am I? Those are the questions that we are asking ourselves in this series that we started last week. We're in week two of this four-week four series, asking this question, asking these, these questions of identity, of figuring out who we are. Last week, we looked at, at how spending time with God, at how beholding God can help us better understand the one whom we are supposed to reflect. We, we are made in the image of God. We are made to, to reflect Him. And that we can only get a, a good picture, a good understanding of who it is that we are supposed to reflect when we sit and behold Him. You know, they're all... There are all sorts of things out here in the world that can allow us, uh, th- that we can allow to define us. There, there are all sorts of cultural norms and pressures that we can experience. We, we can allow politics to define us. We can allow our finances to define us. Anybody remember a Fiddler on the Roof? If I was a rich man. We can do that, can't we? We can let finances define us. There's, there's, a, there's a, um, a billboard on I-95, well, it faces I-95 South as you're coming out of Lumberton, and it's one of those billboards that turns over and lets you know how much money you can win if you're going to choose to gamble and play Powerball. And, and we, I don't play Powerball, I don't, I don't gamble, but, but what the game I do play is every time I pass that sign is, what would I do with that money? The answer normally involves buying a boat. We can allow popularity to define us, can't we? Whether or not people like us, whether, whether or not... Now, I'm not talking about being a person of character who is respected. I'm talking about sort of that, that, that crass, venial popularity. We can allow success, however defined, to define us. I think this is one of the reasons that like middle school and high school is just sort of like humanity distilled. Because if you want to see how this stuff plays out, look at middle school and high school. There are all sorts of things out there that we can allow to come in here and define us. Now, this morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 4. I told you that earlier. And we're going to continue looking at this early church. What happens post-Pentecost when Peter and John are confronted and they have to figure out exactly who it is that they're going to be. We are in Acts chapter 4. We're going to be starting with the first verse. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? While they, Peter and John, while they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. 
But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. By what power or in what name have you done this? Then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today about a good deed done to a disabled man by what, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and, by the, by all, and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus was the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone there is no salvation in there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the men who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in opposition. After they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, saying, What should we do with these men? For an obvious sign has been done through them, clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let us threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. After threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been performed on a man over 40 years old. This is the word of God. Read it. Believe it and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we continue our time of worship, as we open your word and as we begin to study it, I just pray that that spirit that you sent on Pentecost, that spirit that, that in this passage is living in Peter and in John would be present with us this morning. God, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you our God and our King. Amen. Maybe seated. So, so what's happening here? What's happening is that Peter and John are arrested for telling people, for telling the, the people in Jerusalem that Jesus had risen from the dead. So, so the, the Spirit has descended on them at Pentecost, and Peter has preached, and now they've gone to the temple... And as they approach the temple, they, they see this man who has been lame since birth, and they heal him. They, they've been given the Holy Spirit. They have the power to heal, and they heal this man. And then people, as you would be if you saw someone healed in front of you, were astounded and amazed and astonished. All of those A-words. 
And so they start asking about it. And Peter takes it as a chance to, to preach, to preach to the crowd. Notice here in, in verse 4 that as, as Peter is preaching, the, Acts 4 4 tells us that many who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, there's a, there's a question here as to whether or not this means the total, because there were about 3,000 or so that, were, that heard the word and that came to believe on Pentecost. And so there's a question whether or not this is an additional two or an additional five. Either way, let me offer this. It's a lot. I want you to imagine, what would happen if you showed up at church on Sunday Let's lowball this number. And 2,000 people came to believe in one day. It'd be, a, it'd be a pretty monumental day, wouldn't it? I mean, we're all rejoicing at this, at this revival that has started at, at, at this church outside of Nashville where Robbie Gallaty is pastor, where they've baptized almost 1,500 people since December. And we're all amazed. And, and that's since December. And it's a lot of people. And we're talking about two, three times that number in a day. There's something going on here. There's something that has happened. When the Spirit has come and dwelt in the disciples, something is happening. And it's not just the disciples who see it. The priests and the scribes and, and the, 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 the police and everybody else, all of those people, who, who controlled the power in the temple in Jerusalem, they see it too, and it terrifies them. And so they have Peter and John arrested. And then bring them before the high priestly family. Now, do you think there's going to be a lot of disagreement, public disagreement, among the high priestly family? No, because later that night at dinner, Mama turns to the son and says, I told you not to disagree with your father or your uncle in public. Right? Because we've, we've, all, we've all been on the, on the receiving end of that. When we, um, when we don't hold, hold the line publicly with family. So they're standing in front of this, this high priestly family and they speak boldly. And they speak logically. And, and they use the high priest's own rejection of Jesus and they firmly state the truth. Notice there in verse 8 where it says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now see, Peter is somewhere where he, has, he was only a few weeks earlier. Where did they take Jesus? When they arrested him in the garden, they took him to the, to the high priest's house. And it's outside the high priest's house where Peter is standing there over this charcoal fire, warming his hands, where he denies Jesus three times. So he's in this place where just a few weeks earlier, he hadn't had the boldness to proclaim that he even knew Jesus. 
Something's happened to Peter in those, in those intervening weeks. What's happened to Peter is Peter has experienced the resurrection. He's seen and experienced the resurrected Jesus. What's happened to Peter is that Peter has been restored. There's that, there's that story in John. We actually studied it on a Wednesday night, a couple of Wednesday nights ago, where, where Peter has this threefold restoration with Jesus. And then we have the fact that Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. In his, in his boldness, and perhaps we might say in his intemperance, uh, Peter points out that the leaders had been given a chance to build upon Jesus as their cornerstone, and yet they had rejected them. Right there in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone Peter's quoting the Psalms here. He's, he's quoting Psalms uh, 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's talking to men who are, who are going to know the Psalms backwards and forwards, inside and out. He's going to be speaking to them in language that they know and understand, language that they, they've said. The Psalms are... Or the worship guide for the temple. These men will have known this. These men will have prayed and sung this. And Peter is now turning it back on them. The cornerstone that the builders rejected. The cornerstone that you rejected. What's a cornerstone do? You know, many of us don't live in buildings made of stone anymore, do we? We, build, we live in timber frame houses, most of us. Some of us live in brick houses, which makes it impossible for us to hang any pictures on the exterior walls of our house, but that's a whole other conversation to have. I'm about to learn how to hang a, a picture, the, the gallery frame at the top of the wall so I can hang pictures on the outside walls of my house. But a cornerstone is really important. If you, if you have stone construction, think about the great cathedrals of Europe. Think about the Parthenon in Athens. The cornerstone is the first stone that's laid. It's got to be, it's got to be perfect. It's got to be perfectly flat on all sides because it's off of that stone that you run everything else. If the cornerstone is wrong, if it's in the wrong angle, if it isn't perfectly flat or perfectly straight, you're going to end up with walls that are off. You'll throw off the whole building. In fact, in fact, it may even be so bad that the building is so thrown off, so out of sync that the whole building collapses. Foundation is important, and the cornerstone is the most important element of the foundation. Because even the foundation can't be built until the cornerstone is laid. See, in our culture, the setting of the cornerstone has become symbolic. There's a picture here I took this morning. Any of y'all remember this outside? Some of you were probably here when the cornerstone for this building was 
laid down. For those of you who, who can't see it, it's from right out here. It's the symbolic cornerstone of our building, and it says, First Baptist Church, Fairmont, North Carolina, organized in 1792. This building dedicated to the glory of God in the year of our Lord, 1981. Now, this isn't, this isn't a real cornerstone. This isn't a functional cornerstone. This is a symbolic cornerstone. That, that laying of the cornerstone symbolically, the symbolic cornerstone, becomes such a powerful image. Even here, what do they say? They're, where's the foundation? The foundation for this building was for the glory of God. Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone. And if Jesus is the cornerstone, that means that Jesus is the foundation, the very thing off of which everything else is measured. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then that means that he is the foundation, the thing off of which everything else is measured. It was Jesus who had been raised by God and set as the cornerstone over the rejection of the religious rulers of the people and elders. God raised him up and set Jesus out of the cornerstone through the, through the resurrection. He said, no, you have, you have rejected my son. You have rejected me as I came and dwelt among you. You have rejected me. I reject your rejection and I establish Jesus as the cornerstone, as the foundation, as the plumb line, as the rule. He does that in the resurrection, and then he confirms it by the sending of the Holy Spirit. Once we acknowledge God, Jesus, as the cornerstone of our lives, the rest of our identity will be built upon that perfect foundation. Just as plumb walls and straight lines and correct angles are built on the cornerstone in a stone building. Once we acknowledge God as the cornerstone of our lives, the rest of our identity, the rest of our being, the rest of who we are will be built upon a perfect, foundation. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you builders, which has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. The verse right after that, verse 13, what do we hear? When they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized that they were uneducated and untrained men. They, they re- amazed and were ma- amazed and recognized they had been with Jesus. There was something about Peter and John that just confirmed, that, that oozed out of them, that reflected off of them, that, that declared to the world that they had been with Jesus. See, Peter and John knew who they were and they knew to whom they belonged. Their identities and callings were, were secure after spending time with Jesus. 
both prior to his crucifixion and after his resurrection, time that they spent with Jesus that directed the rest of their lives. They were so secure in who they were, in their identity, that even arrest, persecution, interrogation, and lack of societal respect could not cause them to waver. This is Peter. This is Peter who, two months, less than two months before, standing in that same place, would not even acknowledge that he was from the same province as Jesus. And yet he had grown in his identity. He had grown in his relationship to the fact that even though he was standing there under arrest, under arrest by the very same men who had sent Jesus to the cross, he could not deny who he was and whose he was. There was a, a non-conforming, meaning non-Anglican minister um, in uh, Britain in the late 17th and early 18th century, Matthew Henry. Many of you may have know, know Matthew Henry, be familiar with Matthew Henry. He wrote a multi-volume sort of commentary um, on the Bible that is still much beloved by a lot of people. And, and in his bit on Acts 4, this is how he describes Peter and John. Probably there was something extraordinary and very surprising in their looks. They appeared not only undaunted by the rulers, but daring and daunting to them. They had something majestic in their foreheads, sparkling in their eyes, and commanding, if not terrifying, in their voice. They carried the presence of God with them. The presence of God that was not to be found in the holies of holies where the, where the veil had been ripped, but the presence of God that had been poured out on his followers. There's a story in Exodus about Moses. When Moses gets to spend time in the presence of God and he, he descends from the mountain having spent time in the presence of God and Scripture tells us that he shone. There was something about spending time in the presence of God, that Moses' face was made bright with God's glory. See, we are changed when we spend time in the presence of God. We are changed into the creation that God intended for us to become. When we spend time with God, it it changes us. When we, when we rest in God's presence, we begin to grow into that which God made us to be. Have you ever thought about that? That when God, when God made you, he, he made you to be a specific thing. When, when God made you, He made you with a, with a plan and a design in mind on, on who you were to be and what you were to do and, and, and what would fulfill you and make you happy. God did that. God gave that to you. That's, that's what is inside of you. And yet, 
over and over and over again, we try to find that fulfillment and that happiness anywhere else other than through and by God. In very short order, I'm going to get to meet a new person. I don't know when it's going to be. We're sort of at that stage. (laughs) So if she gets up and runs out and I run after her in the next couple of weeks, yeah, you'll know what's going on. You'll sing a song, you'll go home, we'll finish the sermon later. But this this child that we don't know, much to some of y'all's consternation, we don't know if it's a boy or a girl. (laughs) You're not going to fight about it. And if you have a pool going on what it's going to be, just remember God expects his tithe. I don't know. I have no idea who this child is going to be. I mean, it's going to be Audrey's kid, so it's going to be pretty awesome, but it's also going to be my kid, so there are going to be some rough edges. I don't know. I mean, I don't know the most basic thing about this child, whether it's male or female. But God knows. God knows what it is. God has, has made it and, and, and breathed life into it, has quickened it in, in Audrey, and, and, and God knows what's going to make this child happy. God knows already what this child's gifts and talents are. And I would be a poor parent if I didn't tell that child sweetheart there are going to be a lot of people who tell you to to follow your bliss if you want to follow your bliss follow God because God made you who you are God intended for us to become something. And the fact that we think that we can figure that out apart from Him, that we can can find our identity in something else other than in Him, is the height of human pride. So after Peter... And John, it's not really fair. It's not John who smarts off at at the priest. It's definitely Peter. I kind of want to know if John was sitting there going, dude, chill. Like, tone it down. You're an 11 and I need you at like a 7, all right? But after this, the religious leaders still think that they can intimidate them. And so they send them out and they're like, man, we still got to do something. Well, we'll tell them that they can't preach in Jesus' name. And Peter and John come back in and Peter says, man, fine, whatever. You can tell us whatever you want, but we know what God has told us. And so you need to figure out whether we should follow you or whether we should follow God. Why? He says there in verse 20, for we are unable we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard we are 
unable to stop. I want you to ask yourself a serious question. How many times in your life can you say, I have been unable to stop talking about what God has done for me? I mean, many of us, myself included, seem all too able to bite our tongue and to hold it in, in certain social situations, right? It seems like that the, the problem in the church today is not the fact that we're unable to keep our mouths shut glorifying God, but that we're all too able to keep our mouths shut. Peter and John had, had aligned themselves with God. They knew who they were. They knew where they were because of their relationship with Jesus. Have any of y'all ever heard of geocaching? Oh, I, I, get to, I got some excitement up here. Geocaching is something I haven't done in years, but in college, I was really into it. And, and what geocaching is, is that somebody goes out somewhere out in the world, and they, and they establish a cache. And so normally it's like just little, little like fun, like dollar store, little toys, or, or just sometimes it's just a log. And then, you, and then you, you mark it in GPS, you mark the coordinates, and then you publish those coordinates on, online on one of the geocaching sites. And then other people use their GPS and they go out and they explore the world and they find that cache, that, that, little, that little piece of treasure. I think it probably speaks to that desire that we all have, Right? To take that map that we found in the old sea dog's trunk and, and, and go to sea and find the X that marks the spot. Doesn't surprise me that I like geocaching. After all, I spent a significant amount of one summer when I was in elementary school pouring through Treasure Island and a current map because I was convinced that Robert Louis Stevenson was telling us about where a real treasure was buried. Don't worry, if I ever find it, I will tithe. Well, see, when I was doing geocaching, it was, it was a decade and a half ago, and GPSs were not as good and as accurate as they are uh, today. It was really easy to sort of outwalk the signal. You know, so you'd be walking in a direction, and then all of a sudden you would stop and like, you had no idea where you were because you weren't where your GPS said that you were and, and it was all really confusing and you'd end up in the wrong spot or, or maybe you wouldn't be paying attention. You, you would think that you knew better than the GPS and you'd end up in the wrong spot or you just kept walking when you were supposed to have stopped. And the best thing that you could do, and sometimes you would be out in the woods, and the best thing to do was always to stop and wait. Because a lot of times the, the signal would catch up to you. But sometimes it wouldn't. And so you had to sort of go back to the last known spot and start over. 
You had to backtrack to where you had been when you got off the trail and start over. This time, keeping care to keep your eye on the GPS to make sure that you were going in the right direction. This is such a a great image for what can happen when sometimes even when we work really hard at something, but we end up off track and off course. I was a I was a scout. I was really involved in in Boy Scouts when I was a when I was a kid and. And one summer, we all went, all the guys that were my age, we and and most of our dads went, and we went out to Philmont Scout Ranch, which is in the the southern Rocky Mountains in northern New Mexico. And we were backpacking around, and and one day we were all working really hard, and we were working, and we were following somebody's GPS, and we realized that we weren't quite in the right spot. Something, something was wrong. Now, again, this was even, even earlier in terms of GPS technology. The GPS was telling us that we were right here, but we looked, and it didn't make sense. And I'm this kind of nerd, so I got out the map, and I got out the compass, and I triangulated our position. I said, I know the GPS says that we're here, but we're not. We're here. And we sort of stumbled around for a while, and we eventually got back on the trail and got into camp, and everything was Okay. See, we've been following this GPS because we had trusted in it. But it had led us wrong. Because the GPS wasn't right. We weren't where the GPS said that we were. We were where a compass bearing and a map and a pencil and math told us we were. Sometimes we, we, we follow things and we think that it's taking us in the right spot, but we get off track and it leads us the wrong way and it's incomplete and it doesn't quite know where it is because what happens is we get we get away from the thing that we should be following and the truth is we need to stay close to Jesus we need to stay close to Jesus. It's Jesus that's going to keep us on the right course. It's Jesus that's going to show us where to go. It's Jesus that's the cornerstone. It's going to show us, it's Jesus that's going to show us how to build a building and a life that is straight and plumb and that's going to last and not fall apart. It's in keeping close to Jesus that we will have the revelation of our true identity. Of who it was that we were made by God to be. Because we were made by God to be in relationship with Him. We were made by God to to stick close to Him. We were made by God to follow His design. Can we all agree that the last 14 months have been a mess? I mean, we have had political turmoil. We have had social turmoil. We've had an economic crisis. We've had a global pandemic. And we've also experienced this trauma of losing a year. I don't know about you, but I had goals for 2020, man. 
There was stuff that I wanted to accomplish. There were things that I thought I was going to do in year 2020. And yet all of those goals and all of those expectations went unmet. I've heard so many people, and I've said it myself, I mean, I just feel as if everything is unstable. I feel as if the ground is shifting under me. We've been told over and over again that we have to prepare for a new normal. And I think there's some truth to that. I don't think that things are going to go back to the way they were exactly. Because we've had 14 months of chaos. Time has felt liquid. Like in some ways, like it, it feels like that it should still be like April of 2020, and yet in some ways it feels like that was a lifetime and a half ago. This thing happens where I'm like, okay, I need to do, I need to do X, and like two weeks later, I realize that it hasn't happened because it just feels like the, the, the time is just running into each other. last 14 months, I think, for a lot of people has been disquieting because we don't know where to put our trust and then put our hope. Should we put our hope in a politician? Should we put our hope in a, in a doctor? In a conspiracy theory? In a mask? In a vaccine? In a, in a social movement and a slogan? Where do we put our trust? Where do we put our hope? The crises that we have been living through the last 14 months and are really just crises that have come to a head over the last 14 months, and they're all rooted in this question about who we are and what our identity is. I mean, masks have become a marker of identity, haven't they? I'm a good person because I wear a mask. Or I'm a good person because I don't wear a mask. It's a marker of identity. Tough times can, can rock us to our core. But withstanding tough times is profoundly more difficult when our identity is rooted in politics or financial success or in prowess or in popularity or in meeting goals or in having lofty dreams because all of those things will change as quickly as the tide. Those things are, to reference Scripture, shifting, sinking sand. But Jesus, but God gave us something to put our trust and our hope in. He gave us Jesus. And when we have found our identity in Jesus, the things of the world will come and go, but we will be secure in our identity simply because we are His. So my question to you this morning is, do you want to have the boldness of Peter and John? Do you want to be able to be so secure in your identity that you can stand up to the scorn and the ridicule and the power of just about anyone or anything? Do you want to have that, that boldness? There's only one way to have it. 
And, and, and I want you to know that I really believe that there is only one way to have it. To have that kind of assurance and peace. And it isn't when we adopt any of the identities that the world foists upon us. If you want real peace, you have to resist. You have to resist letting culture, uh, cultural pressure, politics, finances, popularity, success become the source of your identity. You have to resist that, but you also have to rest. You have to rest in knowing that God made you, and God wants to see you become the person that he has made you to be. You have to rest by letting Jesus be your cornerstone. By letting Him form and shape you, and you will find the true and real rest. And you will find boldness. And you will find assurance. And you will be able to stand up to the, to the rulers and the elders and proclaim, there is no other name by which we are saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be a